Well, there's a lot going on, isn't there? A lot of good stuff happening. And uh, we've, we've really tried to be intentional in our communication and talking about bringing the, the kingdom of God into the public discourse more often. Too often the church has been viewed as a building. So people say, what church do you go to? And they would point to the building. Well, we don't really want that anymore. That needs to go away. <laughs> uh, we're, we're being intentional about the way we think about uh, how we are, uh, uh, about the gospel and the place of the gospel in our community. And I want to talk specifically this morning about, um, about the place of church, of churches in the gospel. Can we do that? All right, so first, before we do that, we're going to pray. Can we do that? And you know who's going to pray for us? Mr. Todd Miller. Thank you for putting me on the spot. It's what I do, Todd. It's what I do. Well, Lord, thank you for bringing us together today. And God, I just ask that you uh, give us ears to hear this message and uh, bless everybody's day. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Is that going to... Here we go. Um, I want to talk, start here by talking about a presupposition. A presupposition is a nice uh, big word, and it's not a part of speech in grammar. So don't worry about nouns and presuppositions. This is something else. It is a thing tacitly assumed beforehand at the beginning of a line of argument or course of action. Or summarized, it's an, it's an idea that you assume to be true at the beginning of a discussion. Does that make sense? Something that you're coming in with, you're already assuming this is true, and then you're launching into an argument. Now, the thing about presuppositions is that if they're wrong, you could wind up in total left field, even if you have airtight reasoning. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me give you an example of a presupposition. See if, we can, see if you can spot the presupposition, okay? Now... I'm going to pick on my beautiful daughter, Jenna, here. When Jenna was two years old, she asked me this question. You see if you can spot the presupposition. She said, Daddy, actually I think she said Mommy, <laughs> is Jesus still inside me even after I go to the bathroom? <laughs> One of my favorite questions ever. She was two years old at the time, sitting red-faced back there right now. <laughs> See, this is a, when I was teaching in school of the Bible, we'd get weird theological questions like this all the time because, well, <laughs> I mean, come on. So uh, what a wonderful question. Now, can you see the logic of this? Well, Jesus is inside me, and here's this thing is when I go to the bathroom, things come out. So therefore, does he come out too? So the presupposition is this. Jesus is physically inside of me, just like my food and my drink when I eat them. Yeah? All right? Very obvious, isn't it? Let's do another presupposition. Okay? We'll see if we can spot the presupposition. How is the church supposed to stay relevant in this day and age? Huh. Okay, maybe not quite as obvious. And it's a wonderful question that's being kicked around now. How is the church supposed to stay relevant? And I would challenge this. I think here's the presupposition. The presupposition is the church is supposed to stay relevant. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. 
Relevance is, is a loaded term that we seem to care a lot about in the evangelical community. Now, you remember back in the 80s and 90s when the Christian music industry was starting to take off in a more, you know, in a, in a broader way. Uh, part of the reason for that is people said, well, I want to be relevant. I, look, our churches play organ music and everyone out there is listening to Guns N' Roses. So, and I kind of liked the guitar licks in Guns N' Roses. So can we do something about that? So then you, you go to a Christian bookstore and you would see these wonderful tags that say, if you like Guns N' Roses, you'll love Petra. You know, or something like that. <laughs> 80s, right? That's what you would see. Do you think that's what they would compare them back then? Well, they both have electric guitars, so they're basically... Anyway, uh, that's an aside. Um, so it started to expand a little bit, right? And it was a big thing. We, we, we don't want to be looked on as fuddy-duddies. We don't want to be left behind in that. Left behind. There's another Christian cliche for it. Thank you, 1990s. All right. Um, now, that's kind of a silly example because really it caused all kinds of massive debate inside the church and really was kind of foolish because you're talking about taste. Do you see what I'm saying? You're talking about taste. You're talking about, uh, well, I like electric guitars more than a pipe organ. And you know what? I don't really think God cares that much about that. I really don't. I think God created sound. He created rhythm. And it's a beautiful thing to see all these different ways they can, you know, you, you, can, you can mix those things together to make something beautiful. So that was kind of a silly debate. But it's interesting that for so many people, the idea was we don't want to look silly. We, don't, we want to stay relevant with the culture. Now, it's the, the, it, that idea was brought into other arenas that actually did matter. And uh, it's interesting now that in the last, say, 15 years, especially the last 10 years, this has really come to the forefront. Now one of, one of the leading evangelical magazines is called Relevant Magazine. You guys ever seen this or read this? It's got some good stuff in Relevant Magazine and a, a huge blog that goes out very influential because we want to stay relevant. Let's, let's not let the church become irrelevant. Now, there's some good things to it, but you know what I find very interesting? It's interesting that some other religions don't feel the same pressure. For example, I don't see a whole lot of Muslims walking around saying, we need to stay relevant to the culture. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it just doesn't seem to be a thing that people expect. And moreover, the culture doesn't seem to be screaming at Muslims about their harsh standards, say, of sexuality. It doesn't seem to really happen very much. They, they look at evangelical Christians and will point and scream at us. Now, I just want you to think through this here, and I'm not even getting political whatsoever on here. I'm just saying it's interesting the way this is viewed, that evangelicals get the finger of you going, well, how dare you say this or this, or we need to be like this or this, even though some other religions, which actually are much more strict, seem to get a pass at that. And do you know why I think that is? I think it's because they've never said what we're trying to do is be relevant. They've said, this is who we are, this is our culture. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you following me? This, I'm just, this is just, I just want to lay some groundwork here for the idea. So, in terms of popularity, in terms of popularity, I think maybe that we as evangelicals have gone a little too far in trying to stay popular. You see what I'm getting at? 
We want to stay popular. And suddenly, when, when the culture turns on us, we go, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 oh, that's what you thought we meant. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, that is so silly. What do we do? You see that? And I don't think many others have that issue. Now, there are some good things about being relevant. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying let's, let's be unpopular and, and let's be jerks or, or, or whatever. Or let's go around in the Stone Age and, and try to kick over any instrument that you plug into a wall. All right? I actually happen to enjoy modern music very much. I'm glad that we're not still in the pipe organ. And that's nothing against pipe organs. I'm just glad that we've moved beyond. I, I think we ought to know how to engage, how to speak the language of the culture. But you had things like postmodernism move in as a, a very strong philosophical way that people were thinking about the world, basically saying, man, your truth isn't necessarily uh, any better than anyone else's truth. In fact, there are, there, there are no rights and wrongs, essentially, in culture. And so a lot of Christians have gone, oh, whoa, that's deep. We better speak that, say, we better do that too. Otherwise, we're going to get lost. You see what I'm saying? So in other words, this. We've seen what the culture has done sometimes, and we've tried to run up and catch up to it and go, hey, we're cool too. Hey, we, we, can, we can, oh man, we can totally do that same thing that you guys are doing. You see that? And we can totally stay in step, and it's become kind of a thing where I think, I think sometimes we just get embarrassed because we want to be one of the cool kids all the time. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think that becomes a pressure on the church of like, what are you going to do now? Uh-oh, the culture disagrees with you. What are you going to do? Now, for a long time, this hasn't had to be a major issue because we, regardless of all the, the, the obvious glaring faults of, of Western civilization, um, there has been sort of an understanding that people at least had some idea of Judeo-Christian values, okay? People maybe went to Bible school or, or you know, Sunday school as a kid, or they went to some camp or, or whatever. Their grandmother was a Christian, and she taught them some basic things. And so everybody sort of had a grasp on, uh, on you know, a, a lot of the way that the Lord designed us and designed society. And they had all kinds of things wrong, don't wrong. But we at least had a starting place. And the thing is, we're not there anymore. America really is a post-Christian nation now. So it shouldn't surprise us so much when the culture is way over here going, you guys are lame! It shouldn't surprise us anymore. Okay? We're in a post-Christian nation. Of course. Of course they're go we're going to have some things that we see differently. And you guys, we need to be okay with that sometimes. We cannot put relevance as the goal of the church. We cannot put, well, we better be in the conversation. We better not. We do not want them to think we're, we're old fuddy-duddies. We don't want them to think we're get off my lawn, guys. You know what Get off my lawn, kids. <laughs> we're, no, no, no. We're not like that. We're not like them. You see what I'm saying? Now, let's balance this a little bit. Here's... Here's something that Jesus said that was very interesting. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. <laughs> oh, okay. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
So you better wrap your mind around this, he's saying. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. It will! We've really, the thing is, we've just been really privileged here. That's the thing. We've been really privileged that the culture has, by and large, in very many things, looked at Christianity and agreed with us. And suddenly, I mean, it's been happening for a long time, but suddenly, now that it's just gotten so blaring and in our face, we go, oh, no. We're being persecuted. Okay, well, that is going to happen. I don't, I'm not sure that it's that far, but it is going to happen. And you guys, Jesus told us it was going to happen. It happened to him all the time. So don't be surprised. Now, what was he talking about? Is it anything in the world? Is Jesus talk, did Jesus hate the world? Well, actually, no. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save it, right? So what did he mean by this? Was he talking about everything, every person, or what? Well, John, his best friend, expounds on this in his letter. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So he gets specific and says, listen, here's what we're talking about. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know, this was a theme all throughout Scripture. These three things, these three categories. Uh, uh, the, God called Israel to himself, and he was constantly warning them about these three areas. Now, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament... This was a little bit uh, more in your face because all the cultures and the religious system of, of the day had three deities that were very popular and God was always calling them saying, do not worship me like that. I am not like that. Don't do what they're doing. This, guys, this is wrong. This is not the way you're designed. Three deities. Here they were. Three gods that were worshipped. One was called Ashtaroth. One was called Baal. And one was called Moloch. Over and over again, he's warned them, don't do this. Now, these three gods actually lined up perfectly with these things. The lust of the flesh, particular experience, right? But particularly sexuality, which was a thing that was almost worshipped in and of itself in ancient pagan religion. And he says, don't worship like them. You're not to have, for example, Kadesh or Kadesh, holy ones that worked in the temple, which were temple prostitutes. Don't you dare do that. In your worship of me, I'm not like that. Ashtaroth was a fertility cult. And the way you worshipped was through this kind of activity. It was sexual activity in the temple, all this kind of stuff. It was, it was messed up stuff. And he says, don't do it. So he's constantly warning them against it. Baal. Baal was the, the main deity of ancient Canaan. And you worshipped Baal in order to get a good harvest, in order to get stuff. So if you sacrificed the right stuff, then you get a harvest and you could get rich or whatever, and, and if you had a bad crop, then you better go and sacrifice a whole lot of stuff to Baal because he's mad at you, and you can get him back on your side, and then, you, then he can start blessing you with good stuff. Stuff. And finally, you had Moloch. Moloch was a, a personification of the pride of life. If, if you did not have power, and you wanted power, then you needed to serve Moloch. And the primary way that people served Moloch, the ultimate way, was to actually sacrifice their own children. And this was a very common thing in the ancient days. Now, those of you who have sat through my Sunday school class, we talk a lot about some of these ideas and really get into it. And guys, it's some of the most revolting, stomach-turning stuff you can imagine. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You almost think like it was the scheme of the enemy over the ages or something, don't you? 
And John says those three areas, the same three areas, maybe we don't have idols set up where we come and burn candles or bow down to them every day, but those three things are still after you, John says, so don't love those things. We're called to be a contrast community. We as a church must be different in the way that we treat sexuality, in the way that we treat money, in the way that we treat power. We are not supposed to be relevant in the way that the world is telling us to be relevant, like saying, you guys better fall in line or else you are backward. That is not our call. It's not our call. Now, what do we mean by this? A contrast community. Well, let's think about the way that society treats these things today, particularly our Western culture. Let's start with sexuality. The first thing I notice is that our culture views it to be cheap. A very cheap thing, just to be left around, thrown around, not a big deal, not very valuable. And then it ends up getting abused. And then people end up getting really, really broken, and we wonder why they're so broken. And they wonder why we're so broken. You know, one of the saddest things I've ever seen, as I, particularly as I've gone to, to speak in different deceptive training schools, with YWAM is you'll see these girls come in and they're so broken. And they're so, the reason they're so broken is because other men have treated them like objects for so long. And then suddenly they don't know that they have any value beyond what they can give them with their bodies. And it is so sad. And that's not what God intended. We as the church need to present a contrast. We do not treat people in this way. We do not objectify our sisters and our brothers. That sexuality is a sacred thing. That it's supposed to be given only in the context of covenants. It's supposed to be self-donation that doesn't just come in the body. It comes with a whole life. That's the only place where it can be truly protected and nurtured. Do you see what I'm saying? This is different than what the world says. I know it's different. Well, they might think we're fuddy-duddies if you say that this could only, should only happen in the context of marriage. They will! They already do! And you know what? I don't care. Because it is the way that God has designed us. And it's a beautiful design. So he said this, I care too much about your value to, be, to let sexuality be just all over the place. Because it will damage you. And you'll have pieces of you all over the place. That's not what he designed. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we walk around with big old signs that say, you're going to hell if you've said sexually? Of course not. It's unbelievable. I can't even believe that people walk around doing that. I, it's, it's just beyond me. We are a loving, embracing community no matter where a person's at in their journey. And we take in every, people who, who, who struggle in all kinds of areas. And we say, hey, guess what? There's grace for you. God loves you. You want to come home? Here, let me show you. I, I think I want us to be the kind of community that, pe that someone who's been broken like that, who's had all kinds of areas where they've been hurt and they've hurt other people, and they can come in and say, you guys actually treat sexuality differently. You don't use one another here. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Amen. That we could be a contrast community that a woman who's been objectified her whole life could come in here and go, they actually see me. How about that? Do you see what I'm saying? 
We're intended to be different. Money. The world is constantly telling you that you're not satisfied. Isn't that interesting? Have you watched commercials lately? You're not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. <laughs> you are so right. You know what I love to do when I'm traveling is open up a Sky Mall magazine. You guys ever done this? Sky Mall, it's like the only place I ever see anything like this. So I'll flip it open and it'll be just some ridiculous gadget. And it's, it, 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 it's just full of them. So I'm, all, I'm always wishing that I was traveling with somebody so we could play a game called Find the Most Ridiculous Sky Mall Gadget. You know, you'll, <laughs> you'll find some turtle that somebody gave somebody else supposedly in Harry Potter and it shoots water out of its mouth into a fountain or not. Or, you know, it's just all this jumble like ridiculousness. But the world's telling you, you've got to have this. You've got to have this Harry Potter gift turtle thing. I, that's not in existence, I don't think, in case you're wondering. I, I'm just, <laughs> whenever you see jewelry from a book, to me, that's suspect. <laughs> Is that really the bracelet that Aragorn gave to Arwen? No, I don't think so. Um, it's an aside there. But it's constantly telling you that you're not satisfied. Now, how is it that we are supposed to live our lives in contrast? Well, we're supposed to love God and love our neighbor. In other words, in everything we do, we love God and love our neighbor. And I believe the way we deal with our finances should reflect that. Do you see what I'm saying? If, if we're not loving God with our finances, if we're not loving our neighbor with our finances, then we're simply falling short. Our finances, the thing we have, the things that we have, the wealth that we have, is a powerful thing. And we as the church are supposed to deal with those things differently. We're supposed to be more generous than the world. Did you know that? Amen. Is that a rigid thing? No. It's an awesome thing because your neighbors are every bit as valuable as you. And by showing them generosity, you are showing them value. In other words, we don't get caught up in the constant cycles of greed that we see around us. What about power? This is an interesting one. People treat power in all sorts of different ways, and once they get it, they, sometimes they don't know what to do with it. I've seen, I've seen teachers that will stand up in front of a class and say, well, I'm the king of this class, and you have to do what I say. Okay, listen. If you're a teacher, that is worldly authoritarianism. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying? The world says authority is control. Jesus said, if you're an authority, then serve. That's a little different, isn't it? Now, in our country, sometimes we call policemen public servants. Now, sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. But I've met many, we've met our police chief here in town, wonderful man, loves the Lord, loves people. Um, we, Sarah and I had our own little run-in with him one time when one of our boys ran off. <laughs> really good man, public servant, and that's what they're supposed to be. And any time that we are in a position of authority, our goal should not be to make other people conform to the things that we do. Our goal should be to serve them so they can become everything God's called them to be. Particularly, can I say this? Particularly in the area of parenting. 
Sometimes the church has done a really bad job of this because we've, there have been, there have been facets of the church that, that have said, well, what, you know, what you need to do is get those children acting right. So you're gonna have to break their will when they're little and discipline like crazy until you start seeing right kind of behavior. What if we didn't do that? What if we looked at nurturing the heart instead of the behavior? What if when we did have to discipline our children, we were looking for an outcome of their heart to be changed and to be softened rather than to see them stand up straight or do whatever it is we're trying to get them to do? Wouldn't that be different? I believe that's what the Lord's called us to. We need to treat these things differently. We need to be contrast communities where people can come in and they say, wow, these guys treat this a little bit differently. They value, they promote value, they promote generosity, they promote servanthood. Wouldn't that be cool? Do you think that attracts people? I absolutely do. Is it relevant? Well, not to some. And you know what? I don't care. I want to care less. Sometimes, you know what? Honestly, let's be honest. Sometimes we don't like when people are pointing at us and saying bad things about us. So let's care less. Lord, I pray against the fear of man in this church. I pray that this wouldn't have a foothold in who we are. John Wesley was a man who cared a lot about contrast communities. This guy's one of my heroes. Named uh, uh, my son Samuel's middle name is Wesley. I love this guy. He uh, was was uh, uh, son of a preacher. He was brilliant. He was like the top student in all of Oxford. He was given the honor of giving like their student address in the uh, 1730s. He had everything going for him. He became a missionary out of England into the American colonies. Everything going for him. He had a group at Oxford. And they called them, well, actually, they didn't call themselves this, but other people started calling them the Holy Club because they had very intense rules about do's and don'ts. Some of them were quite rigid. And this is what, we're not going to waste a single day. Every day, we're going to give everything we can to the poor, and then we're going to go and visit the people in prison, then we're going to go and do this and this and this. And it was this really, whoa, there's a lot of stuff going on. Ugh. Like, not, not a free moment of the day. You go to bed early, you raise up, you know, wake up late. Pretty intense. John Wesley goes to the United States. He continues this lifestyle. And after a few years, he leaves Georgia as a missionary, broken and totally wasted. And he comes to this realization. He says, I came here to convert the heathen, but oh, who will convert me? He comes to the conclusion that he himself didn't even have faith in Jesus, that everything he was doing was trying to coerce God into loving and saving him. And he gets on a boat, and there's a big wind, and, and everybody's scared that they're, they're going to die as they're crossing the Atlantic. Everybody except for this small group of Moravian missionaries, and their little girls and little boys are singing songs to Jesus in the middle of the storm when everyone else is scared to death that they're going to die. And he says, aren't you afraid to die? They say, no. What about your children? No, of course our children aren't afraid to die. And he realizes his own spiritual bankruptcy. He comes back to England. And do you know what he does? He decides he needs more rules. I'll give you an example. One of them here is, uh, let's see, to labor. This is like, I will <laughs> like, pledge to do these things. Uh, to labor after continual seriousness, not willingly indulging myself in any the least levity of behavior or in laughter. No, not for a moment. 
I will do this. I will earn God's love. And I will, I didn't just, I didn't push in hard enough. And he knew his own bankruptcy. And he's talking to preachers going, I'm not even saved. I am trying so hard. And I, and I know this is messed up. But he just makes it worse on himself. And it's finally, he's, he, he goes to this meeting and he hears this guy reading just Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. And finally something clicks and he's able to let go. He's finally just like, fine, yeah, I trust you. And at that moment, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And from then on, he was able to step out and he was able to do more things and accomplish more for the Lord than just about anybody who's lived since the early church fathers. Unbelievable things came out of his ministry. And you know what? He was able to start a whole new movement of contrast communities. But he couldn't do it unless he himself had met Jesus. And what's my point here? I'm talking about contrast communities and then talk about a guy getting saved. Many people look and they say, we want to be a different kind of community. We want to be a community that loves people, that's generous, and that, that promotes servanthood. Let's, let's get together and do that. And then you know what? Many of the churches have said, well, why do we need God then? We're going to serve people. We're going to love our communities. We're going to value people. We're going to promote generosity. We don't really need the gospel. What we need to do is just love our community. And here's the thing. As John Wesley learned, you're not going to be able to keep it up without Jesus anyway. There's a lot of churches who have tried to prescribe to that idea, and many of them are no longer churches. Now they have rotary clubs meeting in them or something else. Because you might as well just be a rotary club if all you want to do is get together and be a charity. And I'm glad we have charities. They're wonderful. They're good. We partner with them. But the church is not supposed to be just a charity. We're supposed to be a community that loves Jesus and loves one another. And that does things differently. Does this make sense to you? We need to be a contrast community. But unless your heart is first and foremost given to the love of Jesus Christ, it's a fool's errand. And you can try and try and push and push to serve more. In the end, you'll be totally bankrupt. But to give them ourselves first and then to look around and say, hey, I've got the love of Jesus. I'm going to give it to you all. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing. And the world might still think you're backward, but I, get, I got to think you're going to care less. And, and I, I think after people get to know you, they're actually going to understand something about you, that you do have the love of God and the love of the Holy Spirit, that you're not coming in a judgmental attitude about anything they've done, about anything they are doing, but you're simply saying, I love Jesus and, and I love you and I want to help you. What if we looked like that? What if our presentation of the gospel was like that? Not only here at Christ Center, but all of Junction City. Do you ever think what might happen if Junction City got saved? If Junction City started acting like a contrast community? What kind of changes would we see? I'm pilfering a man uh, this morning named Tim Keller, who's a wonderfully in influential pastor and, a, and leading a whole movement that Project Hope even is, is sort of following this entire city-reaching movement, and amazing things are happening. And he started dreaming what would happen if New York City, which is where his church is, got saved. What would happen if New York City met Jesus in a powerful, transformative kind of way? And he said this, and I, I think this is true probably of Junction City and Eugene. The first thing we'd see is people forgiving one another. I want to see 
of people in the community that end their hostility toward one another. I want to see the church not have any hostility against even public institutions that maybe haven't been so nice to us, sometimes for our fault, sometimes for theirs. That's why, that's why uh, Project Hope is a powerful thing that we're working in because there's been a lot of animosity between the evangelical church and the public education system. And you know what? Let's just put that history behind us and let's love our kids. Let's love our schools. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what can happen. So Lord, we just praise you, Jesus. We praise you that you've shown us the way. And we ask that you would empower us with your love, that we can follow in your footsteps and treat the world like you did. Not compromising in our faith or compromising in our doctrine, but simply reaching out in love to our neighbors. And we pray, Lord, we pray for this city, that this vision you've given us, that we would see our entire city come to you, this thing that we're pushing for would be a reality. We believe we can see powerful things through you. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor. I just feel like that needs an applause. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. I want to ask the prayer servant team to come forward. If there's anyone here today that needs healing in your body, I want you to come and get prayed for. We've seen just some tremendous healings um, when the Holy Spirit moves through his sons and daughters. And for the rest of you, I just want to let you know there are lots of invite cards out on the information counter. So if you ran out, resupply your, your stock and invite people to come and experience this contrast community. You guys be blessed and have a great week.